Today's scripture is from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart and the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Sam, and we're going to be going through Matthew. And there's something to understand as we kind of go through um, difficult texts like this, but also a lot of the upcoming parables that we'll see in the next chapter, is that Jesus is, um, in these particular sections, giving less um, uh, prescriptive instruction about what you have to do and more just describing how things are. Uh, that was what was happening when Chris preached, <clears throat> excuse me, if you were at the picnic on the parable of the sower, it was not a parable about go ahead and go and make your dirt good, which is very often how that parable is wrongly preached. It was a declaration of the reality of how God works and how His Word, uh, what we see and what we observe and how uh, it kind of interacts with, with different people in the world. So this is similar in that respect, but Beginning in chapter 12, um, we have seen that Jesus has a growing sense of opposition against him and his message. And it's been building, obviously, and his popularity has grown, and he is gathering large crowds, and people of repute are starting to follow him, not just, you know, marginalized fishermen and people like that. And the religious leaders uh, have become increasingly uncomfortable with him, particularly about his teaching about the kingdom, and especially what they would describe as his blasphemous claims about authority, that he is the Lord of certain things, that he has the power to forgive sins and, and things of, of that nature. So led by this group called the Pharisees, and you may have you obviously probably have heard, but you may not be familiar. I'll try to explain who they are. But these Jewish 
religious leaders are starting to, to watch Jesus a little more closely, start to follow Him a little more closely. We saw last week, uh, they are following Him and watching Him go through the grain fields with His disciples. And so they're trying to uh, really catch Him in some kind of disqualifying sin. Some kind of false teaching that could um, allow them to declare He is you know, a false teacher of some kind. And so, as he watched, or as they watched the disciples pick grain, we saw them basically say, hey, you guys are doing this on the Sabbath. You are being unbiblical. Right? That's the first claim. You're unbiblical. And then it goes further as they uh, see Jesus going to a synagogue. And they, in one, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, it almost looks like they bring this guy with a withered hand to Jesus to kind of trap him and see if he'll heal. And he heals and they're like, oh my gosh, you're doing something that's unlawful. You're sinful, right? It's, you're unbiblical. You're sinful. And so, when they do that, Jesus, using the Bible, and using really, like, logic, He refutes every one of their accusations, and then He goes a step further and declares Himself Lord of the Sabbath and greater than the temple that they worship in. Which is like, are you kidding me? Those are like the iconic you know, aspects and pillars of Jewish faith, and he's claiming he's greater than these things. And so, they're beginning to feel their kingdom threatened a little bit. And so, calling him out as unbiblical didn't work because he's like Bible stud, right? And calling him out as sinful didn't work because he's sinless. And so now they're like, well, we've got to discredit him somehow. We've got to destroy him somehow. You're demonic. You might do good, you know, powerful things, but it's through demons that you're doing them. So you can see this progression, which honestly, that's kind of how a legalist works. We talked about legalists a couple weeks ago. They're just critical, critical, but it like grows in its depth and offense. Like, oh, you maybe unbiblical. Oh no, dude, you're totally simple. Oh, you're a demon. You're a false teacher. And so the greater part of this text that that Aaron read is really Jesus' response to the Pharisees. And in his response, he identifies this thing that's been called the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. And this text has created a lot of anxiety for a lot of Christians over the years. And people will fear that they accidentally committed the sin that Jesus talks about. And so for years the identification of what is this unforgivable act has just kind of perplexed scholars. And so there's all kinds of disagreements. You probably could pick up two separate commentaries and they'll disagree, no matter what commentaries they are, about what this act is. And, and really, it has created a lot of just really bad interpretive kind of bird walks and attempts at identifying the sin. And Jesus' point, like if you just step back for a second, because this is kind of, when you get, it's not to say there shouldn't be a theological precision, but it is to say sometimes when you get lost in the nuances and trying to figure out exactly what Jesus said, and He's not really telling you exactly what He said, you can kind of go nuts. And Jesus is not trying to identify the one big sin that everyone needs to avoid. That's not what's happening here. On the contrary, what He's trying to do is to show through these Pharisees, why religion can't save you. Why religion can't save you. So, 
In order to avoid the unforgivable sin search, we're going to have to understand a little bit who the Pharisees are and how they view the kingdom of God. So let me just kind of give you a little bit of background of who the Pharisees are that we talk about so often. Uh, Their name comes from a word with its root meaning of separated, because that's how they viewed viewed themselves. They were separated from all of Israel in a very special and, and, and righteous way. And the movement, the Pharisaical movement, began actually a couple centuries before Jesus was born. And it was focused on resisting what had amounted to a lot of Greek influence that was coming into their culture. So it wasn't necessarily motivated by a bad thing. They had a very specific culture, a God-given culture, and they wanted to protect it from it getting kind of affected and infected, for lack of a better term, by the Greeks. And so, contrary to popular belief, a lot of the Pharisees weren't super educated. They weren't of the educated or upper class. In fact, they were characteristically uh, middle class without extreme formal education, though there certainly was um, men who would be mentored as guys like Paul under Gamaliel and things like that. But in large part, a lot of the Pharisees were middle class dudes. And they would live, though, in these communities. They would separate out of Israel. They would live in these communities under the direction of an expert in the law called scribes. You probably have heard scribes before. These guys were like law experts, knew everything. And so in these communities, they would devote themselves to upholding every minute detail of the law, which led to, as we've discussed, them creating new laws to protect them from creating or breaking God's laws. So they create all these fences so they wouldn't actually break the law, and it became this overwhelming... Um, a system that was oppressive and enslaving. But they felt that this was how they were going to be right before the Lord. This is how they were going to achieve righteousness. Moral living, memorizing Scripture, things that we wouldn't say are bad in and of themselves until they become the ultimate things in themselves. And so they had this zealous commitment unlike anyone else, and it won them the admiration of what would be the common sinful people. They would look at them and go, dude, these guys are like super, super Christian, super dudes, right? They're like super righteous, super moral. They all memorize the Bible. And so they actually had genuine admiration and they had great influence because they would always you know, default to like, well, whatever the Pharisees say because they know the word better than anyone. And so Jesus actually himself in his Sermon on the Mount used these guys as an example of a high moral standard, but then he used it to say that like, yeah, you actually have to be greater than them. If you remember in Matthew chapter 5, he said, for I tell you, speaking to the crowds, which include his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And people are like, who's getting in then? No one's going to get in if those guys aren't getting in because those guys have it together. Those guys know the rules. Those guys obey the rules. Those guys make all kinds of lifestyle sacrifices. They are moral, biblical. If they're not getting in, I am definitely not either. And so this is one of the reasons statements like Jesus made were like, yeah, you got to exceed um, their righteousness. Like theirs wasn't enough either. Those are the kind of statements that caused them to despise Jesus. Because he didn't say like, well, you got to be like the Pharisees. He said, you got to be better than the Pharisees. Now, through his teaching and his work, Jesus 
started to proclaim a very different kind of kingdom and acted like a very different kind of king than they expected, that being the Pharisees. Because like all of Israel, the Pharisees, they, they did wait and yearn for the promised king. They were waiting for the king to show up and for the kingdom of God to be ushered in and for all of God's enemies, including Rome, to be conquered and it would be ruled by the descendant of David, the Messiah. That's what they were all waiting for. And they believe, these Pharisees, that by virtue of kind of their commitment, their zealous commitment to holiness, that they would usher in this kingdom and they would be honored and blessed because of their morality and righteousness. You'd be like, they are coming, here's the king, Pharisees, you will rule us all, you guys are awesome, you other guys suck, right? That's what they thought. And so when Jesus shows up and is like, nope, standards here, you're here, different kind of kingdom, different kind of king, you guys have read the scripture, you've missed the point altogether, and they're like, yeah, we don't like you. In essence, he showed them that they were wrong about everything they believed. And that's why it was so difficult. Like, when he's attacking the Sabbath, he's not just attacking a rule, he's attacking their whole entire lifestyle, their entire view of the scriptures. And so, led by fear, they want to destroy him. Because they dare not refuse that they're wrong about anything. They can't possibly be wrong. And the crazy thing is the closer they get to the kingdom, right? the more time they spend with Jesus, the Son of God, the actual King, God in human flesh, you see the harder their hearts get. So Jesus actually, I don't think He's accusing them here, but He is teaching them about what is forgivable first, which we'll talk about, which is awesome. But then he's warning them about what is unforgivable. And then he's going to, I think, plead for them to be forgiven. Now, what's forgivable? So like, there's some statements in there that are pretty amazing that we kind of read over as we're reading this argument that Jesus makes. And so we've seen the Pharisees attack Jesus and every attack becomes more and more vengeful and it starts... With him saying, you're unbiblical, and then it says you're unlawful, and now he says, look, you're Beelzebul. Like, you are casting out demons by the prince of demons. And Beelzebul means lord of the flies or lord of the manure pile. Okay? So, as he's doing these healings, and people are like, is this the Messiah? Is this the son of David? The Pharisees are like, no, this is Satan. They're pretty much just calling him Satan, or at least the tool of Satan. And whether they're saying this out loud or just under their breath or in their minds, Jesus knows what they're thinking. And once again, without quarreling, He reveals their claims to be just, well, stupid. Foolishly illogical. He's like, yeah, Satan casting out Satan. Brilliant idea, guys. Let's wait for Satan to destroy himself and we'll be all fine. Okay? Just look, a kingdom divided is not going to stand. That's, that's kind of silly. And your own sons, being you know, those people part of your own group and, and, and community, they cast out demons. What are they doing? And so he just kind of destroys their whole accusation. And he reveals something in doing that, that I should say the Pharisees do, that the fact that they're even talking about Satan affirms that they see something supernatural going on. 
that they see something that they can't explain by normal, physical, natural ways, and so like, uh, we can't say it's God, it's Satan. Satan's healing the lame and the blind and the deaf. But in verse 28, Jesus says that His power resides with the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit only pops up a few times really in the book of Matthew. And they're very important times. The Holy Spirit shows up in Matthew chapter 1 when the Holy Spirit brings Jesus into the world. Shows up again in Matthew chapter 3 when the Holy Spirit anoints Jesus at His baptism for ministry. Shows up again in Matthew 10 when Jesus' disciples are told that when they get drugged into courts and experience persecution that the Holy Spirit will give them words and defend them. Don't worry about it. And now we see in Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus' mission, His miracles, everything He's done, whether it be healing or feeding, whatever, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says that if it's by God's Spirit I'm doing this, if it's the power of the Spirit, then you are experiencing the presence of the Kingdom right now, right in front of you guys. And it's amazing how they respond to it. We often believe, I think, that if God would just show up in a shaft of light in front of us, if you just come and tell me, I would believe. You're a liar. It's not true. Do we forget how much of an appearance or an interaction with God that Israel had for all those years? And yet it took them a couple of days to go, let's go back to Egypt. I know I see this pillar of fire, which is God, and this pillar of cloud leading. I see His Holy Spirit, His dwelling, His actual presence on this tent. Talk, like I hear His voice, but I don't know if I believe. And here, you have guys who are interacting with the Son of God in the flesh, close enough to touch, and they don't believe. Regardless, though, they do respond. They just don't maybe respond in the way that we would expect them to. See, an encounter with the Spirit of God is always going to create a response. It's going to demand a decision of some kind. And if, even if you think you don't decide, you decide. And without condition or apology, Jesus speaks some really hard words. And He basically says, look, there's no neutral response to the Kingdom of God. You either love Jesus or you hate Him. And love and hate are pretty strong words, but that is without question the truth. You either, according to Jesus, like you're on one team or the other, you're either going to gather with Me, you're going to want to be with Me and learn from Me and fellowship with Me and love Me, or you're going to run from Me. You're going to want to get away from Me. Right now, Everyone in this room, everyone in this city, everyone in the world is on one team or the other. It's not just, eh, Jesus, I don't know. You either want to gather with Him and be with Him or you don't. You either love Him or hate Him. But the beauty of it is what Jesus says here. For anyone who has or does hate Jesus, 
disliked Jesus, ignored Jesus, dismissed Jesus. Anyone who's accusing Jesus, right? I don't accuse Jesus. Sure you do. We accuse Him of not giving you what you want, not doing what you expect, of not changing what you think you need changed. For those who hate Jesus, for those who accuse Jesus constantly, to anyone who's been running from Jesus, trying to hide from Jesus, perhaps you think you're just worthless. You want want nothing to do with you. Perhaps you feel unworthy. He says something pretty amazing in verse 31. He says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. He says it again in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So I want you to hear this as clearly as I can speak it. Because it should encourage you. For those who are hostile towards Jesus for one reason, for those who are accusing, for those who feel worthless, for those who feel unloved, for those who don't feel like it's possible for you to be forgiven. What does Jesus say? What is forgivable? He says that every sin is forgivable. Lying? Forgiven. Cheating? Forgiven. Stealing? Adultery? Murder? Sexual sin? Lust? Greed? Abuse? Anger? Divorce? Drunkenness? Addictions? Dishonoring to parents? All forgivable. The weight of Jesus' blood is infinite. And Jesus says every sin is forgivable. And this should bring comfort to some of us. It's disturbing because you're thinking about sins I didn't name. You're like, no way. That's forgivable? Yeah. No matter what you have done, whether it was one time or for several years, you can be forgiven. No matter how dirty you get, you can be washed clean. No matter how ugly you've made yourself, you can be made beautiful. No matter how much you destroy your life or even the lives of others, God can rebuild all of it from ashes. He is the one that takes that which is dead and makes it alive. That is stinking good news. I need to hear often that I am forgiven because I constantly listen to the accuser. Maybe you don't. I do. Of feeling worthless when I sin. A feeling as if, oh man, and I'm a pastor, right? So I got like an extra level of conviction. I'm going to stand before people. Who am I? I'm a slime ball. I'm a dirt bag. I'm a sinner. He says, forgiven, 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 forgiven. He goes further though, right? He says, you can speak against the Son of Man. What's the Son of Man? The King, right? The King, that's a phrase that comes out of the Old Testament talking about the descendant of David who will come. So what does he say? You can accuse the King. You can mock the king. 
You can spit on the king. You can hit and beat the king. You can kill the king. And you can be forgiven. Because Jesus is no earthly king, right? He's not the same as a king that we might expect who would never tolerate any of those things. And how do we know this? Consider what the king did on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, it records it. It says, Two others who were criminals were led away to put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, tell me something's not forgivable. Jesus says, I tell you, every sin is forgivable. But then he goes and seems to contradict himself. Right? He says, well, there is something that's unforgivable. So what is unforgivable? If he says this big swath of like, oh, it's all forgiven. You can do all this stuff. You can even hurt me directly and it's forgiven. So what's not forgivable? It seems as though, even though Jesus is, is infinitely willing to forgive, it seems possible that someone can put themselves in the position that they're not forgiven. They're not forgivable. It says in verse 31 and in again in 32, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And again it says in 32, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. And as I said, for centuries, the scholars have debated exactly what is this? We better figure this out. I don't want to do it accidentally. Or maybe I can use it as a weapon to point out someone else has done it. Which has typically been the case. A number of contemporary scholars conclude that it's when you attribute work of the Spirit to the devil which seems to be um, a very fair understanding of the text. And I think this position, if you were to hold that, would rightly make us very slow to condemn or otherwise dismiss pastors or church movements as false or cultic. Right? It's interesting how quick we are to like, oh man, false teacher, cult. Like, Well, if we think that the sin is attributing the things of God to the things of the devil, we better be really slow to speak. Not that we shouldn't speak, but very slow. It's amazing how quick the word cult and false teacher runs off our lips. And while I think it's deplorable and a bunch of other bad things to attribute the things of God to Satan, I'm not convinced that that is what is unforgivable. In fact, I agree with with several scholars who find in this kind of apparent contradiction where he forgives everything but not just this one thing as an issue of external behavior against what amounts to an internal disposition towards God. Something we might be able to hear but we really can't see and that is the heart. Only the Holy Spirit knows the heart. I don't know 
regardless of what people confess, where your heart truly is. The disciples had hints, but they didn't know Judas. He hung around with them, right? He's like, man, he, he healed. Did those miracles with them. Only God knows the heart. And if we think about the Pharisees in this situation, right? externally, from all appearances, they've got it all figured out. If anyone's going to be saved, if we're just based on external stuff, it's them. And how often does Jesus say, man, your lips, they're right with me, but your hearts are far from me. These guys have devoted their lives to being moral. And even though Jesus proves on the Sermon on the Mount that they still fall short, even if they attempt and think they obey the law perfectly, I will tell you this, Jesus still stands ready to forgive them. It's amazing how hard we are on religious, self-righteous people. We often hear, I often hear church planners, I just want to hang out with the broken and the, the marginalized, and you know, Jesus would be hanging out in the bars and blah, 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 all this stuff, right? What about the self-righteous? Well, Jesus condemned them. They still need salvation too. You just have to learn to love them differently. Communicate with them differently. So Jesus stands ready to forgive them too. But their problem, as everyone's problem, but in this case, who he's talking to, their problem is internal. A place where only the Spirit can work. External religion can't save. External religion can't save and can't even change the heart. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians about religious trappings and religious ceremonies, he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So from all appearances, if we were just kind of evaluate the guys that go to the prayer groups, the Bible studies, that are there on Sunday morning that read their Bibles every day, we go, these guys got it nailed. And Jesus says, no, they don't. Over the last few interactions, we've seen Jesus has shown them they have it all wrong. They've read their Bible the wrong way. They've applied the law the wrong way. They've responded to Jesus the wrong way. And Jesus taught much, particularly in the Gospel of John, about the role of the Holy Spirit. And He says in chapter 16 that one of the roles and responsibilities of the Holy Spirit, as it comes into this world, is to lead the world to repent. Which is another way to say, to admit you're wrong, confess, and turn from your sin. In Luke 16, I believe in verse 8, he says, and when He comes, Jesus teaching about the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see Me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He later says that the Holy Spirit is going to be often called the comforter. So he's the convictor and the comforter. And he's talking to these Pharisees and he says that every unlawful external action that you can imagine, right, whatever 
darkness your brain wants to go into, what about this? What about this? Okay. Any external action you can think of is forgivable. But as Tim Keller, I think, rightly observes, and I, I think he said it best, at least I like it. He says, if you resist the internal work of the Spirit that leads to repentance, no sin is forgivable. Right? Any sin's forgivable. Any external thing you could do, forgivable. But if you resist the work of the Spirit that leads you to repent at a heart level, no sin is forgivable. It doesn't matter how much good you do or bad you avoid. The heart is what needs to be changed. And the heart is what the Spirit attacks or addresses. Jesus is willing to forgive the Pharisees who have used their mouths to call Him Satan. Which is pretty bad. But He's warning them about what their statement reveals about their hearts. See, anything we say in response to Jesus, anything we say in response to Jesus confesses something about our response to the Spirit. And it reveals everything about the nature of our hearts. I don't necessarily believe we can hear blasphemy of the Spirit. I don't think that we have the power to declare who is guilty of it. I really believe that is a sin of the heart, a sin of the Spirit that only Jesus can truly see. And we can get hints of it as people talk about Jesus and express hostility about Him or all kinds of things. But I think it has very little to do with our words Though what comes out of our mouths, Jesus says, reveals everything about our heart. So these guys, in the presence of the divine King, having seen the evidence of His power with their own eyes, they refuse to do what? Admit that they're wrong. I'm sure no one here has a problem admitting that they're wrong. This is what we're talking about, resisting the Spirit. See, like the Pharisees, those who resist the Spirit in this way may actually look moral. But in their hearts, they're actually hostile towards the Gospel. Towards grace. Those who resist the Spirit, I think, refuse to admit that they are weak and they pretend they are strong. How do they do that? They refuse to confess anything. Or if they do confess, it will start with an I'm sorry and it will be very general not specific, minimized, explained, perhaps as a really unfortunate mistake, but not sin. I think those who resist the Spirit in this way love their religion more than they love Jesus. Love the good works they do more than they love Jesus. Love the great things they do for the name of Jesus more than they love Jesus. Jesus says the Spirit convicts and the Spirit comforts. So listen to this. You get nothing else. The Holy Spirit, am I resisting the Spirit? The Holy Spirit convicts and comforts. But anyone who resists the conviction of the Spirit will never, ever be comforted. Never. And that's not something you can force about somebody. That's a work granted by the grace of Jesus according to 2 Timothy 2. 
The Spirit convicts and comforts, but anyone who resists conviction will never be comforted. Anyone who refuses to to confess their sin, to truly repent of their sin, will never, ever experience the peace that God has to say, Forgiven! Because in their heart, they truly don't believe that that is forgivable. Or perhaps worthy enough to be forgiven. No matter how moral someone has been or good that they have done, they will not enter the kingdom in heaven because they have not realized the very first thing Jesus said in His Sermon on the Mount. They do not believe or not living as if they are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit comes from a humility of a recognition of your own insufficiency weakness, and sin. It comes from the humble acceptance that you are a sinner. Dirty, ugly, broken, and rebellious, saved by grace. And someone who resists the Spirit never wants to admit that they are poor in spirit. And I truly believe of anyone who goes to hell, ends up committing the unforgivable sin. That they simply refuse to repent at a heart level, even if they confess with their mouth. They do not believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord. So this leads us to the last question. is like, well, how can I be forgiven? And I think it's especially important to recognize that Jesus is speaking to religious leaders. And I say that because... Um, those of us who call ourselves Christians should pay attention to texts like this. It should give us great pause to be very reflective of our own hearts and asking questions like, what really is the basis of your salvation? Why are you so confident that you're forgiven? Why are you confident that you're not unforgivable? In this passage and others, Jesus warns that it's possible to be very religious and unforgivable. And we say religious people as if it's those people out there, but I'm just talking about many of us who have more faith in our practices as a Christian, in our works, whether it be reading the Bible, praying, serving, giving, whatever, than we do in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't define religion as, oh, that group. Religious people are especially at risk, I think, of resisting the work of the Spirit and miss the Gospel. This, this passage is, uh, or this teaching is echoed in passage in Hebrews 6, which I'll just read. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. That's religious people. So there are people who read their Bible. There are people who confess faith. There are people who get baptized. There are people who attend road groups. There are people who lead Bible studies. There are people, dare I say, they even pastor churches who do not get the Gospel. And how can we forget the scariest words 
Jesus ever preached in the Sermon on the Mount of Matthew 7. Where it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. On that day, many, not few, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Holy smokes. That scares me every time I read that. Jesus says there are many who are religious but unforgivable. For even if they confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, they don't believe in their hearts. Even though they enjoy the presence of the Spirit, which by being together here as a people, we enjoy the presence of the Spirit. Even though you experience listening to His Word and the presence of the Spirit there, or seeing people do amazing things in service for the Lord, the presence of the Spirit there, you resist Jesus' call to confess your sin and to repent. To admit that you're wrong. To admit that you're weak. So how can you be forgiven? I say this knowing that God is the one who grants this. You repent. You repent. You turn from your sin. You confess your guilt and you receive forgiveness. Repentance, though, is not some solitary act that you do once. It is a disposition towards sin and a disposition towards God that lasts a lifetime. What's Martin Luther, right? The great reformer nailed a big list of 95 things that were a problem in the church on the German church door. What was the first one that he wrote? When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent! He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, we're never done. We're never done admitting we're weak. We're never done admitting that we are sinful. We're never done. Yes, we are saved by grace. Yes, Jesus already knows how deplorable and broken we are. Yes, He already knows that the sin you confessed last week, you committed again this week. He already knows. And He says, Repent again and again and again. There is no healing. There is no peace. There is no comfort without confession and repentance. But don't make the mistake of religious repentance. I'm sure the Pharisees, if the screws were turned hard enough, they could actually come up with some kind of confession. But the difference between religious repentance and gospel repentance is very vast. When you're religious... You confess out of a fear of God and a fear of men. There may be lots of apologies because you're very sorrowful about what you've done. There may be lots of tears. Bunny, any admitting of wrong, any I'm sorry, is basically to keep God or men happy so they will keep blessing you. That's religious repentance. That person truly doesn't see their flaws, nor do they truly admit their weaknesses. They just don't think they're that bad. They are sorry for the consequences of sin, but they are truly not sorry for the sin 
itself and the way that it grieves God. They may be sorry for how it grieves their family. They may be sorry for how it grieves their friends. They may be sorry how it grieves the victim that they abused. But they are not sorry that it grieved the Lord. That's religious repentance. Because it's all about yourself. And that kind of repentance isn't even repentance at all. It's self-centered and self-righteous and self-reliant. But the Gospel changes everything. It even changes repentance. It gives you an entirely different experience. The Gospel tells us that any wrong we admit, no matter how heinous, no matter how ugly, no matter how dark, no matter how destructive, no matter how many times it has occurred, it can never condemn us. There's a freedom in repenting. Romans 8.1, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So I can freely declare my weaknesses. I can freely declare my brokenness. I can freely declare that I sinned yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And Jesus says, forgiven. Forgiven. And I can experience the comfort of the Spirit who already knows I'm weak and just wishes I would admit it myself. We no longer have to fear rejection. But we can mourn our sin because it's grieved our Father. And our grief doesn't have to lead us to this place of misery. So like, I need to suffer long enough and cry and beat myself up so then I'll deserve forgiveness. No, you don't deserve forgiveness, but He freely gives it to you. So you don't have to beat yourself up. He was beat up for you, so you didn't have to be. Jesus offers it freely to us. And our hope is never going to be found in my own power to stop sinning or to apologize enough or to make perfect restitution. It is going to be resting in the power of Jesus to cover it no matter how bad. And to heal me no matter how deep the wound might go. And to free me no matter how enslaved I might feel. And the more that I refuse to resist the Spirit, refuse, and the more I give in to the Spirit and admit that I am wrong, and admit that I am weak, the more I will see how great my sin is. But the more I see how great my sin is, guess what else is greater? The grace of God. On that day, Jesus says, the day of judgment, everyone will stand before the King. You and I will all stand before the King. And He says, you'll be condemned on your words. Or you'll be justified on your words. So the question is, what will your words be? If you are religious, you'll stand before Him and you'll say, I'm strong. Look what I did for you. You owe me a ticket to get in. But if you are faithful, you will simply say, I don't deserve to enter your kingdom. But Jesus has made a way for me. For I am weak. But He is strong. 
Don't be afraid to confess your sin. That's what the enemy wants you to do. Let it go. He already knows. Don't resist the Spirit. Receive forgiveness for whatever it is. And then you receive the comfort that comes with knowing that He loves you. Let's pray. Father, You are good. And You know just how bad we are, whether we admit it or not. So Holy Spirit, I pray You will overcome whatever resistance we have. I know there are people here, Father, who refuse and are fighting confessing. I know that they're sitting thinking about the shame that confession brings and the guilt they will feel, but Father, those are the lies of the enemy. You know and You teach us, Lord, if if we will give in to that Spirit, if we will stop resisting, if we will just repent and admit our weakness, Lord, You will comfort us because You forgive us. Lord, teach us that there is healing in confession. There's healing in repentance. There's joy in confession. There's joy in repentance. Let us boast in our weaknesses so that the grace of God might be made that much more beautiful. Thank You for all that You've done. Continue to soften us by Your Spirit, Lord, and grant us repentance. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The time in our service where we we uh, remember the suffering and death.